Thank you so much for that. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, where in a moment I'd like to read a passage of Scripture that's going to be the foundation for today's message. That's Matthew, chapter 18. While you're turning to Matthew 18, let me just say two or three uh, words of response to the introduction. First of all, thank you. I should take you on the road and let you do that everywhere I go. (laughs) That was nice. But I am grateful to be here today. And I am very impressed with what I see in this congregation. The rebirth of this church in this location is a significant and necessary part of advancing God's kingdom in this part of his world. And so thank you for what you're doing here. Uh, A church really only needs, as far as I can see, two things to have health and and life. One, it needs clear gospel preaching. And second, it needs intentional leadership. It doesn't have to have a certain program or a certain method or a certain style, but it does have to have a leader who says, we're going somewhere, let's go there. And when I see the quality of the remodel of this part of your facility as as an expression of that intentionality, and then I hear the quality of the worship that was done today for us in, in a small church like this to have that kind of quality and intentionality was very significant, so thank you for that. Now, these kinds of things speak about what you're doing here and about the promise of the future you have together. So thank you for what you're doing. Lift up the gospel and have intentional, uh, an intentional plan to move forward, and you will see the continued rebirth of this congregation in this community. And that will be an asset to God's kingdom. We need that, and I'm glad I can be here be a part of it this morning. Second, you know, you asked how, how I would come as the president. Well, I've been trusting God's providence for 40 years, and here's my answer. I go where I'm invited. So if you invite me, I'll come. If you invite me back, I might come back. But I know you're waiting to hear if I'm any good today or not before you decide that, so we'll get to it in just a second. And then I'll just add one more word personally, and that is thank you for your support of Gateway Seminary. You support us through your gifts through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but you also do more than support us financially. You pray for us, and then some of your members are students of our school. And we would invite a lot more of you to come and see us. If you need any kind of ministry training, we can help you uh, through our online or video uh, conference programs or even our face-to-face classes. There's something for everyone. If you have interest, just check with me after the service, and I'll talk with you about that. Let's turn our attention to the message and start with a true story of two families. And let's call them the Smiths and the Browns. Now, the Smiths and the Browns were best friends. The fathers were best friends. The mothers were best friends. And the children played together more like cousins than across-the-street neighbors. In fact, the mothers once told me that their children were so close that they never called each other's kids home for lunch during the summers. Whichever house they were playing in, when lunch got put on the table, that's where they ate. These families, the Smiths and the Browns, were best friends. One, uh, and, and so because of that, they celebrated holidays together. And leading up to one Labor Day weekend, Mr. Brown <laughs> bought a go-kart. He brought that thing home and needed some work. So he and Mr. Smith decided they would spend the Labor Day weekend reconditioning this go-kart, and they did that. They tore it apart and put it back together to get it ready for Monday afternoon because the families were going to have a joint picnic together and then afterwards spend time with the go-kart up and down the street in front of the house and that's what they did. 
great time together. And then after the meal, got that go-kart out in the street and fired it up. And one after the other, the kids took turns racing it up and down the street, bringing it back. Finally, uh, the Smith boy got on. He was about 12. Took off down the street. And none of us are still sure exactly what happened, but somehow the throttle or the accelerator lodged open. And he drove that go-kart under a large pickup. And the carnage was so horrific that I can't really describe it in a service like this appropriately. So after the coroner and all the first responders left, the Browns went into their house and the Smiths went into theirs. And the Smiths called me. And Mr. Smith said, Coach Jeff, you see, I wasn't their pastor. I was their Little League coach, which is a whole other sermon about getting involved in your community and living the gospel there. He said, Coach Jeff, this is what's happened. We know you're a pastor. Can you help us? So I went to their home that Monday afternoon and helped them as much as I could with what they had witnessed that afternoon in the street. Tuesday morning, I went back to their house and as a part of that pastoral visit, I asked the question, have you talked with the Browns? No, we haven't. They went in their house, and we haven't been able to reach them. So I spent that day with the, with the Smiths, and then on Wednesday, I went back to their home again because we were preparing for the memorial service to be held that Thursday afternoon. I asked the question again, have you talked to the Browns? And they said, no. In a moment of pastoral courage, I said, come on. And I led them out of their house, and we walked across the street, and I pounded on the Smith's front door. No answer. But I'm persistent, so I pounded harder. Finally, the door cracked open, and Mr. Brown said, yeah. And I said, hey, it's Coach Jeff from Little League. I got the Smiths out here on the porch with me. Can we talk to you? He looked at me for a moment and then closed the door, took off the latch, and opened it and said, yeah, I guess so. So I stepped into their living room. There's kids laying around huddled in blankets. There's little scraps of food on plates. It's obvious from the smell that nobody's been out of that room in two days. But before I could say anything, Mr. Smith cut around me. And he said these words, almost these exact words to his friends. He said, we need you. We're not going to make it through this if we don't make it through together. What happened in the street wasn't your fault. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. But we're not going to make it unless we go through it together. And those two men fell into each other's arms and started sobbing. And their wives grabbed on, and all four of them were sobbing. And kids started scrambling out from under blankets and coming in off the porch, and pretty soon I had a mob of sobbing humanity standing there in that living room. And in one of the rare moments in my life where I had the good sense to keep my mouth shut, <laughs> I stepped back into the shadows in the corner of that room, and I thought this. Father, this is the greatest example of forgiveness that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Now, that happened a number of years ago. The church I'm telling you here this morning, it's still the greatest example of forgiveness I have ever seen in my lifetime. And it illustrates the power of forgiveness. And I want to teach you this morning about the power of forgiveness by reading to you another story 
a story Jesus told that illustrated the power of forgiveness and then preached to you about what it means for you this morning in this day and age, in this context, in your community and in your family, what it means to practice the power of forgiveness. Matthew 18, start with me in verse 23, Jesus is speaking. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This passage, excuse me, this message divides itself into two parts. It's a very simple message, just two halves. The first part is this. The parable teaches we need forgiveness. In this parable, the master or the king is, represents God. And this wicked servant who owed this phenomenal amount of money represents us. Now, how much did he owe? Well, the Bible tells us that he owed 10,000 talents. Now, I'll do the fast math for you. Uh, If you convert a talent into a denarii, which was a day's wages, and do the math and multiplication, here's what it tells you. This man owed over 16,000 years of back salary. Now, some of you with a business background are thinking, how did anybody let anything get this far out of hand? Okay, now, hang on. This is a parable. It's Jesus making up a story. Now, let's be clear about that. Jesus really said these words, but he's making up the story to make a point. He's using something called hyperbole, which is gross exaggeration to get his point across. And so Jesus says this in the story. There was a man who owed 16,000 years of back wages to his boss, his master, his king, He was in a hopeless situation. And my friends, this parable about forgiveness begins with an illustration of our situation in relationship with God. We are in a hopeless situation. Our sin and the stench of it stacks up like 16,000 years of back taxes before God. And we are desperate in need to do something about it. Now, in our culture today, we don't like to hear this kind of preaching. We don't like to hear that God is holy and there's something wrong with us and we need a relationship made right with God by the means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't like to hear that because it tells us that there's something wrong with us. And in our culture, we start with little ones and tell them all along, oh, you're right. Oh, you're perfect. Oh, we want your esteem to be strong. Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. But there is something wrong with us, isn't there? 
And that something is called sin. It's what's broken about us. It's what it's what's uh, flawed about us. It's what's wicked about us. It's why we, despite how hard we try, can't always do what we know we ought to do. There's something wrong with us. And we can't fix it. Now, we try to explain it away by one of two means. First of all, we try to explain it away by redefining God. We just don't want the master to be quite like this in the story. Now, we say God is holy, and that's what this story is illustrated and based on, but we also know that God is loving. And so we try to redefine God by just making him one of those qualities, which is God is love. And he is. You know that? He really is. But he's also holy, simultaneously both at the same time. You can't get away from this problem by redefining who God is. You can't say things like, well, God is the man upstairs. Or, well, well, God is my higher power. Or God is my co-pilot. Seriously, God is riding in the second seat in your life? That's what you mean when you say that? Look, God, God is more than a higher power, and, and, and God is more than your co-pilot, and God is more than the man upstairs. God is holy, and we're not. And the chasm between us is significant. Now, we also try to solve this problem by redefining who we are, what's wrong with us, and saying that we're really not sinners. We're something other than that. But when we do all of those kinds of psychological gymnastics to try to get out of the problem, it still leaves us frustrated at the end because we know something's still not right. Why don't we just come to the simplicity of it? God is holy. We're not. And the solution is not to redefine God or explain away our sin. The solution is to simply say, God, please forgive me. Because of what you've done on the cross of Jesus Christ, you've made my forgiveness possible. Now I'm asking for it. Please forgive me. And here's the beautiful thing. When you ask God for his forgiveness, what does he do? He will forgive you. Just like in this story, when this man came and fell down and asked for forgiveness, it was granted. Doesn't that feel good this morning? Listen, I don't care who you are this morning or what you've done, and I really mean that. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can come to God this morning and ask you to forgive, ask him to forgive you, and he will do it. He will forgive you. You say, but it's really bad. If you only knew. Look, I, I've been a minister for about 40 years. And while I haven't experienced everything that people can do to each other, I've experienced a lot of it. I've heard all kinds of things from all kinds of folks about all kinds of sins about the evil that people do to one another and the evil that we've done to others. And we say, if you only knew, well, I'm telling you I do know, but more importantly, God knows, and he still says to you, come to me and I will forgive you. Well, that's the first half of the message. That wasn't so bad now, was it? God is holy. We're not. We need forgiveness. It's available if we ask for it. But now we get to the second part of the message. And it's a little harder. The second part of the message is we must forgive others. Now, you saw what happened in the parable. This man who was forgiven this great debt, he found his friend who only, or, or he found his, uh, his servant who only owed him 100 denarii. Now, let me do the math for you on that. That's about three months' wages. About three months' wages. Now, that's still a good bit of money. If you were behind three months on your bills, you'd have some trouble, and I understand that. 
but that's a manageable number. You can recover from that if you're given enough time. You know what I mean? That's not that insurmountable. But he, owing that money, the forgiven servant found him and said, pay back what you owe. And when he refused, well, word got back to the master, to the king in the story, and he came back and said, because you were unwilling to forgive, you'll now pay the full penalty for what you've done and put him into debtor's prison until he could pay back all that he owed. And because of the significance of what was owed, we know he would never get that out. So it was a life sentence, if you will, of debtor's prison trying to pay off what he owed. The second part of the parable is we must forgive others. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means we forgive others like God has forgiven us. Now, let me be clear here. You will never forgive another person in the same way God has forgiven you. You're not God. You won't be able to forgive at that level. So I'm with you on that. Forgiveness is hard. But we have to learn to forgive like God has forgiven us, as close to it as possible. So how has God forgiven us? Well, let me give you two or three ideas. First of all, God forgave us when we didn't deserve it. Sometimes people say to me, well, I'll forgive someone when they ask me. But God made forgiveness possible for you in Jesus Christ long before you ever thought about asking him to forgive you when you didn't deserve it. The Bible says, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the first step is you forgive people who don't deserve it. And another way God forgives is God forgives lavishly. God ladles out forgiveness in our lives. He, he doesn't give it out in little pieces or little bits. He pours it on when we ask him for it. At our house, my wife has a little baking drawer in our kitchen. And in that drawer, there are all kinds of things used to bake different kinds of things. And there's these little measuring cups, or excuse me, not cups, little measuring spoons in there. She's got this little tiny one. It's a quarter teaspoon. I mean, it's hardly anything to it. But when I see that, come out of the drawer, I think that's how people want to give out forgiveness. It's like, yeah, I'll forgive you for what you've done. Come here, I got just a little taste for you. That's all you get. You get a little touch of forgiveness. That's all I'm giving you. You know what you did to me. Just a little touch. That's all you get. How does God forgive? Well, God has two huge ladles the size of a planet. And God dips down into the vat of forgiveness and comes up and just washes it down over you. And while you're still dripping with it, he says, I might have missed a spot. So he dips in one more time and comes forward and just ladles forgiveness all over you. Do you see the difference? God forgives people who don't deserve it, and when he forgives them, he forgives them lavishly. Not some little teaspoon, quarter teaspoon, that's all you get, but huge ladles just pouring it on until forgiveness washes all over you. And then he forgives people completely. Now, I know this is really hard for us because we're not God, and I've already said that. But God forgives completely. He puts it completely away from him when he forgives. You know, the Bible says this. Most of you, many of you will be able to finish this. There's a verse in the Psalms that says that when God forgives us, he separates our sin as far as the east is from the Yeah, a lot of you know that verse. You know, the east from the west is a long way. That's what the verse is trying to say. When God forgives, he puts our sin as far away from us as the east is from the west. So let's review. We must forgive others as God has forgiven us. We must forgive people who don't deserve it. We must forgive lavishly. And we must forgive completely. 
Now, having said all that, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but you don't know how badly I've been hurt. Well, I'm not preaching this morning's message about somebody who cuts you off in traffic on the way to church. I'm not talking about that person. I'm not talking about the person who got your dinner order wrong last night at the restaurant and you had to eat something that wasn't quite what you ordered. I'm not talking about that. What I mean that we must forgive others, here's what I mean. I'm talking about your ex-wife who took your money and your kids and you're still trying to recover from the pain that inflicted on you. I'm talking about your racist boss who kept you from getting the promotion you deserved, took money out of your pocket and food off your table, set your career back a decade. I'm talking about a business partner, a person you thought you could trust, who backstabbed you and walked out with the money, forced you to start over. I'm talking about your mother who belittled you in front of your friends in such a way that you were crushed. And so you dealt with that by overeating, overdrinking, overdrugging, because there's a deep pain in you that was caused by your own mother. I'm talking about your uncle who touched you in ways a child should never be touched. I am not speaking this morning about some frivolous thing like getting cut off in traffic or getting your order wrong at a restaurant. I'm challenging you this morning to think about what it means to forgive someone who has really wronged you, who cuts you so deeply that you've spent a decade or two dealing with the pain, who wronged you so badly that your family or your career may have never been what it could have been. I'm talking about people who really, really hurt you. Now you're thinking, well, Jeff, if I forgive those kind of people, doesn't that mean that they get away with what they did to me? Not necessarily. You see, you're for confusing forgiveness with the removal of consequences. It's not the same thing. Forgiving someone does not remove the consequences that God or others may bring about in their lives. Forgiveness does not remove consequences. Let me give you a couple illustrations to help you know what I mean. I was preaching on forgiveness one time in a different context, and when I concluded, a woman came forward after the worship service and said, so you want me to forgive my brother? I said, well, perhaps. Uh, wh what did your brother do? She said, my brother stole $300,000 from our parents. While their mental capacities were diminishing, he was managing their resources. And, and, uh, the, and when we finally stepped in, my brother and I, and discovered what our other brother had done, 
$300,000 was missing from our parents' accounts. And we did some forensic accounting and got some help to understand what was going on and presented all of that information to the local authorities. And my brother's been arrested, and he's, on, he's going to trial soon for stealing $300,000 from our parents. I said, I understand that. So you want me to forgive him? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, here's what forgiveness looks like in your case. It means you will go visit him in prison. Forgiveness is not about the absence of consequences. Now, listen closely. Forgiveness is you giving up your right to revenge in the situation. Forgiveness is saying, I will let God and others deal with the circumstances that have been inflicted upon me, but I will release this circumstance, and I will grant forgiveness in the midst of it. I will move away from holding on to my right to revenge in the situation that does not absolve another person of their consequences. Here's another illustration. A number of years ago, when I was still a pastor, a man came to our church and asked if he could become a member. In consultation with him, I discovered that he was a convicted sex offender. He had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was living a life of discipleship and commitment to the Lord. He was coming into our community and needed to be involved in a church that he could sustain his growing Christian commitment. He asked if he could become a member of our church, and I said to him, yes, you may, but understand this. Every condition that's been placed upon you by the state of Oregon is applicable when you're on our property as a church. And so we welcome you and we do not hold your past against you in the sense that we want to take retribution or revenge upon you. We want to offer you the support that you need to move forward with your life. But understand this, every consequence in your life is placed there by the state of Oregon is in place when you're on our property. And he said to me, I take that in a second if I can be a part of your church. I need to be in a Christian community. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Forgiveness is not saying we forgive and forget. We don't think about any of these consequences. You don't have to pay for what you've done. No, forgiveness is I give up my right to revenge and I trust that God and others will make right this situation however it needs to be made right in God's time. You say, but I know people who've wronged me that have already died and they got away with it. Really? The Bible says... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look, no one gets away with anything, if you want to put it in those terms. Everyone is held accountable for what they've done, but, give, but, but, but forgiving others is you giving up the right to revenge in the situation and trusting that God and others will make it right over time. Is this making sense to you this morning? We must forgive others. And when we do, we forgive them like God forgives, people who don't deserve it, lavishly and as completely as humanly possible, trying to approximate what God has done by putting their sin as far from us as the east is from the west. Now, you're also perhaps thinking, but don't people have to ask me for forgiveness before I grant it to them? And the answer to that is no. And I'll tell you the clearest reason I know that to be true, and that is some of the people who've wronged you are already dead and gone. Or they've moved out of your life 30 years ago and they're not coming back. You couldn't find them if you wanted to. So you say, well, how can I forgive those people if they don't ask me? Well, that's the point. They don't have to ask you. 
You can grant forgiveness without it even being requested because forgiveness is not something a person gets from you. Forgiveness is something you give to another person. Does that make sense? So when you grant forgiveness, you grant it to people who don't deserve it. You grant it lavishly. You grant it completely. You give it to people. They don't have to ask you to get it. And in doing so, you're giving up your right to revenge in the situation and saying, God, I'm trusting you from this day forward to make this right in whatever way you want to by God, by your means and by the means of other people that you may want to use. But I release this and I move on. Well, Seminary presidents do a lot of different things. Uh, we administrate, uh, we preach, we teach classes, but one of the things seminary presidents do is we take people on trips. Now, usually these are donors or friends or students or pastors who have affiliation with our school, but every year or so, a Gateway Seminary takes a trip to the Holy Land. Well, a few years ago, we took a trip, and quite frankly, the thing got out of hand. We wound up with two buses. Now, in, the, in Israel, if you've ever been there, you tour around by bus, and each seats, bus seats around 50, and that's a nice crowd. But we had a lot more people want to go, and we wound up with two buses. We also decided to have a little longer trip, and we decided to go to two countries, Jordan and Israel. Well, the problem with, with that is that Jordan and Israel don't really like each other. And so in order to go from one country to the other, here's what you have to do. Now, we were going from Jordan into Israel, but it works the same both ways. We got to Jordan, to the border, and here's what you have to do. You have to unload everything out of your buses, all your luggage and everything. You take it through these airport-style metal detector security station, and then when you get through there, you carry your luggage across a bridge. The bridge is about 50 to 75 yards across a bridge into Israel. When you get on the other side of the bridge, you put everything back through another set of metal detectors in case you built a bomb on the bridge, okay, because the Israelis do not trust the Jordanian security people. So then you put everything back through, and then you take it out, and then you reload it on another bus on the Israeli side because the buses cannot go from one country to the other. So we pull up to the Jordanian side. We unload the bus. We put everything through the metal detectors. We start carrying it across the bridge. Now, I don't have a lot of problem with this. This was a number just a few years ago, and, and, and I'm still not completely falling apart, although I am getting older. And so I got my stuff together, and I got it across the bridge, and I got it through, and I got it on the bus. And then I turn around, and I look back on the Jordanian side, and I see who normally goes on these trips, on these seminary trips. Well, you guessed it. Who has the time and the money? Older people. And I look across that bridge, and here's a lot of people over there, including a lot of senior adult women, kind of looking across that bridge wondering, hmm. So back across the bridge I went, took some stuff through the metal detector, loaded it up, and me and a couple of little old ladies went back across the bridge, dropped everything on the Israeli side, and did what did I do? Back across the bridge. About my seventh or eighth trip back and forth across that bridge, I'm thinking to myself, we need to throw some of this baggage in this river and be done with it. We do not need this much stuff going with us. And standing on that bridge, it came to me. What a picture of life that is for so many of you. You've been lugging baggage around all these years. You've hauled it from country to country. 
You've hauled it from relationship to relationship. You've hauled it from job to job. You've hauled it from house to house. And you've hauled it from church to church. And I'm asking you this morning, throw the baggage off the bridge. It's time to be done with it. It's time for you to say this morning, forgiveness is going to be granted in this situation so that I can get rid of this garbage, this baggage, this issues, or these issues from my life, and it's going to happen today. Let's bow our heads. As we come to the conclusion of this message, with your head bowed, I'd like to talk with you for just a moment and then ask you to pray just a silent or whispered prayer as a response this morning. First of all, if you're here this morning and you have never received God's forgiveness into your life through Jesus Christ, then I'd encourage you to pray something like this today. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And my sin is separating me from you. I confess my sin. And I ask Jesus Christ into my life as my Lord and Savior today. Listen, there, there's no magic words. There's no magic prayer. There's no specific thing you have to pray. But if that prayer that I've just voiced is, is what's really in your heart, just as best you can, cry out to God just now and confess your sins to him and ask him to come into your life through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We need forgiveness. Ask God for it right now. Now let's move to the heart of heart for many of us. We must forgive others. If they're a person your life right now that you need to forgive. You don't need to think about it for 15 minutes. That name probably came into your mind in a nanosecond. You already know. Say, I need to forgive my mother for being abusive toward me, my father for being a drunkard who ignored me, my boss for holding me back, my business partner for stabbing me in the back. I need to forgive my ex-wife, my ex-husband. I need to forgive my child who turned their back on me and walked away from everything we taught them to love or, or ta taught them to love and to appreciate. They've ignored us all these years. God, help me today. Whoever's in your mind right now and the situation is very real to you, pray something like this. Father, you know what this person did to me and just name it. God, you know what this person did to me. And I'm powerless to do anything about this except forgive them. So right now, even though they don't deserve it, I lavishly and completely forgive them for what they did. And then pray this way, Father, if, if, there's, if there's consequences that need to come in their lives, I'm going to trust that you and others, other people, legal systems, 
authorities in some way. Lord, if there's consequences, I'm going to trust you and others to do whatever is needed. But I'm giving up my right to revenge. I'm throwing the baggage off the board. I'm done with this. I want to leave church today liberated. Heavenly Father, around this room, people have been praying now in response to this message. Some have prayed and asked for your forgiveness and a new relationship to you through Jesus Christ. And I pray in the authority of your word and your promise in our lives that you'll give them the confidence you're hearing their prayer and answering it right now. But many others are praying that they will be able to forgive someone who's wronged them terribly in their I pray just now you would give them the grace to live out this forgiveness they've prayed about today and to do the spiritual battle necessary to make sure that forgiveness sticks. And that they remember this incident from this day forward as well. Lord, when we refuse to forgive, we're the ones who pay the price. And I pray you'd liberate us Give us the freedom that's available to us from the forgiveness that we can give. And we receive this from you today. In Jesus' name, amen.